four, episode six, The Wizard is over, but we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. Hi, everybody. Mike Bloom here, hopefully having the brain, the heart, and the courage to discuss the anti-penultimate episode of Barry, where we find out now what all of our characters are looking like and doing eight years going before the titular character comes back into their lives and assumingly wrecks shit up. As I mentioned, we're breaking down the anti-penultimate episode. And of course, I am joined by someone who is an anti in her <laughs> own right, the great Latanya Starks. Latanya, how are you? I'm doing very well, and so are my nephews. Good. Um, hey, Mike, look at what the cat brought into the house. <laughs> Listen, you can really drive no ho Hank to like the brink of breaking bad. But eight years can apparently do a man good, considering the line that he welcomes us back to after this time <laughs> jump. Just do not mention Cristobal to him. No, ever. Uh, you know, despite the statue of Cristobal <laughs> that greets you when you walk into the building, never mention Cristobal. Yeah, and the giant memorial plaque commemorating his singular vision for the sand operation <laughs> that has now led Hank to become a very different businessman that i think we suspected at the end of episode four yes uh i i can't even imagine how it is that hank has managed to actually seem legitimate but like he's in la so he's networking yeah i mean listen i'm going to shock the world right now and say i know very little about organized crime like <laughs> they're running the sand operation and it all seems to be like pretty above board right, right? like they have their huge facilities, both on and off site, their business is branded with giant letters outside the building. Like there has to be at least a decent amount of legality in what they're doing. Perhaps the mm -hmm. means of procuring the sand is illegal, but everything else seems to be done fairly above the table, or maybe they're just really good at paying off those that may be usually incriminating them for these things. It just seems like a, a well-run front, right? Like the the sand operation could be in every way completely legit, but it's laundering a lot of money that is not. Mm, it's the car wash of Barry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we're going to get into the third to last episode of the show. And after a really risky episode last week that had us settling in, for the uncomfortable status quo of Barry and Sally and their child in nowhere land. We go back to things and people familiar. We are going to see, as I mentioned, what has happened to Fuchs and to Hank and a little bit more about Gene in the eight years since we left them at the end of episode four and bring Barry back into the picture. And maybe Sally is to follow considering she's about to discover how her home is not as safe as she thought. What did you think, Latanya, about this episode? Did this feel more like a stray back to the normal course of Barry for you? And was that a good thing? It did feel like, you know, with getting all the characters back together, for sure, that it was a little bit of a return to the normal Barry. And I do think that's a good thing. You know, we have to tie up these storylines. It's the antepenultimate episode. So we've got to figure out a way, even if, We've done a time jump and we've taken people to the lengths and breadths of the earth. We've got to get them back together. And of course, that place would be L.A. Yeah, that's where it came from. That's where we're going to. Much like that sand, 
it all goes through LA. And so even before we got that cliffhanger at the end of the episode, I think we were all suspecting and perhaps hoping, okay, at least one of Barry or Sally is going to make their way back there because that has been generally the hub of all the action. And yeah, we get that this episode as Barry is going to attempt to carry out the thing he swore to do in the last line of the last episode, leave his family behind to hopefully secure their future and mm-hmm. kill Gene, not knowing that what he left behind is so much more than Mr. Cousineau. Yeah. Um, he, I, I, I can't believe this turn that we get from Gene in this episode. Um, the fact that he apparently just had to spend time on a kibbutz for eight years. And now he's like, suddenly uh mr personable who isn't uh like only thinks of him doesn't only think of himself anymore Mm. um but the the irony of barry being like mr coos now is going to ruin everything when really he just came out of hiding to be able to tell them not to do the movie is fantastic yeah i love that delicious irony right that both of these guys have actually pretty parallel paths or at least similar looking if you blur your eyes i bet you mentioned the the kibbutz like the fact that gene is saying baruch hashem to people like (laughs) much like barry he kind of had his own religious discovery in the interim eight years just of a different faith and i think seeing how these guys approach their similar exodus back to la with a purpose with neither one of them realizing the other person's there trying to accomplish the same task is setting up a lot of really fun stuff for mm-hmm. the final two episodes. But let's start back in the planes here as Barry is trying to advise Sally how to handle the household while he's gone, right? Oh, he's God. trying to time her to put a gun together, uh, falsely saying that boys instinctively know how guns and cars work. They do. He- I mean, I'll raise my hand and say perhaps <laughs> exception to every rule. Or if that has happened, it is very latent in me. Uh-huh. As I, you know, my car ownership and less so gun ownership can tell you <laughs> over the course of my life. But we get sort of a an externalizing of what we assumed was the internal monologue for Barry to say, I have to kill Kusuno, right? That he said, yes. you can't outrun a movie. Basically, it'll bring a lot of unwanted attention to them. Sally is very much trying to ground Barry here by saying, do you really think that killing Gene is going to be the thing to halt this movie? But Barry is really railroaded by a couple of these narratives here, including the idea that the movie is only from Gene's POV, quote, and that's not the truth. Yes. Uh, When he said that that was the reason that he wanted to kill him, I was like, wow, you're both such narcissists. It's ridiculous. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that was that was surprising. I didn't know what his twisted logic would be, but I didn't think that it would be because of the movie's POV. And Sally, for her effort, is really trying to use every tactic in her like Stanislavski-esque playbook and breaking down this scene to try to get him to stay to the point where she very performatively puts on this, well, God wouldn't yeah. want you to do this. Uh, and that's going to be something that will not phase Barry in the moment, but it's definitely something that he will certainly be searching for an answer throughout the episode. But yeah, I mean, the irony of this all gets called out in the moment when Barry says, I want our son to know his parents. And Sally responds, he thinks my name is Emily. Yes. 
That is, see, I feel like I'm going to defend Sally. <laughs> oh, wow. Episode. All right. Well, Latanya, now I do fear for your nephews a little bit, depending <laughs> on what juice you're serving up to them. Listen, they get only the best juice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> only top uh, shelf juice. <laughs> That's what I'm gonna start calling it. I'm gonna make a company now called Top Shelf Juice for Kids. As long as you put it in big letters outside your building, then it's completely legal. I will. Uh, listen, she is the only one that is speaking sense in this yeah. particular time and being like, you can't just go murder someone. Do you really think that a murder is gonna bring less attention to us than a movie? Like, what what's going on? And I think that she has no choice but to grasp at straws and say, well, this goes against our beliefs. Um, you can't actually kill someone. God would not like that. Uh, which, granted, does lead to my favorite part of the episode, which I know we'll talk about, which is just Barry listening to these podcasts. Oh, so good. <laughs> my God, what does Bill Hader have against podcasts? <laughs> Nothing. He goes on them all the time. He's actually fine with us. I, I certainly hope so, because yeah. at least he has created an opinion about them that maybe doesn't speak towards his own views. I agree with you with Sally from this perspective. Like, I do not blame her whatsoever, considering that at this point, Barry really only has two fears in his life, because right now he is living his dream. Remember, back in season one, he was having these fantasies of mm -hmm. being this award-winning actor and being married to Sally and having a kid just take away that first part and you pretty much have the latter part of season four for Barry, the character. But the two things that I think he essentially fears is like his family's safety and God. And so yeah. if he feels like the first is questioned, the only thing you can invoke really is the second of watch out. You may be smited by the almighty should you choose to do this. But Barry, I think has really low key deluded himself in a manner of speaking to believing yeah i mean very high key <laughs> considering the airfare and everything and the literal keys he's taking to drive his car to uh, leo's house but this idea of this is the thing that i need to do no matter what it's to protect people this is one of the things that he'll listen to on the podcast throughout this episode right is oh well sometimes the murder in the bible was justified if it meant saving people and saving those that you love and that's what barry essentially believes he has to do right now not knowing, A, that Gene is trying to pursue the same goal that he is, and B, that this is opening up Pandora's box and then some. Yeah, it's definitely opening up Pandora's box. I, I would like to um want I would like to know how Barry squares all of the other murders he committed with his whole worldview about God being all powerful and judgy. Uh, I'd really like to know. I know that uh, that a lot of people who are Christian believe that if you kill somebody at war, it's not like you mm -hmm. can get rid of those. But that's not the only time that Barry killed a bunch of people. No. And even when he says, oh, it was my job. I just did it for a paycheck. Just like you do this. You do taxes for right. a paycheck. You serve up burgers and fries for a paycheck. There are still things like killing Janice was not yeah. to secure a paycheck. No. There, there are things in between those gray lines, but that's what religion does sometimes is to try to fill in those blanks from a philosophical perspective. 
Bill Hader once again uh, appeared on the Prestige TV podcast from The Ringer this past week, and he said something really interesting that Barry at this point feels the only two people he can get forgiveness from in his life are God and his son, a father and a son in very different ways. And so I do think it's interesting to compare that both his own journey of trying to search for the right message that fits his worldview of, okay, I guess I can murder now because this one edgelord podcaster said it was okay. (laughs) And then also him trying to do this, I think, at least not completely altruistically, as Sally calls out, are you doing this just because Gene turned you in? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, doing this to try to protect his family, as he'll claim. And look, there was a lot of screwed up stuff in the last episode. But for what it's worth, when Barry says goodbye to John here, and we'll see it later on when it's just him and Sally. Yeah. This boy worships Barry. Yeah. It's really unfortunate in a lot of ways. And it's very uncomfortable to watch because you... I mean, you get you get the idea that like this is the person that he spent all of his time with, yeah. Since he was a small like like a wee bairn basically, and now uh, he gets every bit of knowledge that he knows about the world from this person. So of course, when he goes away, that means that it's gonna change his worldview quite a bit. Yeah, Barry was his north star. Without him, he's just lost at this point. And granted, Barry was guiding him in a very odd direction considering how much he cloistered him Mm -hmm. for the past eight years. But at the same time, I mean, there's a reason why this boy was so despondent. Bill Hader compared their household to a cult. And when its its leader is missing, there's a vacuum there. The household is very culty. I I decided not to call it a cult last week, but... Uh, now that Bill Hader has done it, I'm very <laughs> excited because there are so many things to point out there. There's the uh, the fact that they all, it's almost like they have uniforms that they wear. Like mm. what they dress as the mom, the dad, and the kid, right? And they're always, uh, the way that they watch this these church services together, like it just all fits in with the person who lives out in the middle of nowhere who has decided that they can, like have an entire militia's worth of guns because uh, you know, the law allows it and God says it's fine. And don't ever come to my part of the frontier. Don't come anywhere near my wife and kid. Like it's very new world, like America post Waco cult. Mm. Well, let's get into somebody who I think had produced his own cult like worship and the new environment he steps into. Good God, <laughs> do I adore post-prison Fuchs. I don't think Steven Root would have ever thought within like a 25-year period he'd go from Milton the Stapler guy in office space to slick back, tattooed ex-con Monroe Fuchs. Yeah, He's so tatted up. It's ridiculous. And it doesn't seem like, you know, those kind of grody prison tattoos. No. You with like a makeshift needle. Like, it's good ink, it seems. It is. It's really good ink. Only the best for the Raven. Well, he did say his body tells a story, so he had to get really <laughs> good quality paper and penmanship on that. Exactly. Yeah. This is this is ridiculous. It's it is so, so hilarious. And then he he's got the... He's got the fingernail paint on, like his nails are painted black, and he does some weird sign. Yeah. To the, 
to the guard, guard, which seems to symbolize, right, that he ran shit not only amongst the inmates, but assumingly with the guards yeah, as well. And they also, to. that guard looked pretty in fear and not just of the two heavies that greeted him when he got out, but like also looking at Fuchs too. So clearly in those eight years, we went from everyone having admiration for Fuchs for getting the shit kicked out of him for not knowing anything about Barry, even though they claimed that he did, to becoming the kingpin both inside and outside of this prison. He definitely lived like a king while he was in there. Uh, so, and he, he's got this deal with, with Hank. So he is, I mean, things are going, like all in all, after that ass whooping that he took, things started going pretty great for Fuchs. Not to mention, he's also very recently picked someone up in his life as well. <laughs> this was so ridiculous. The shot of, you know, behind the car, them driving around with the roof down, cut to this random <laughs> coffee stop where he's given a stink eye to this barista who looks very confused, writing the raven on the cup, but apparently takes it as a sign to run away with this man I know. and marry him. I I can't. <laughs> the casting of this woman whose name I don't think we even ever get. No, she should have written it on a cup. <laughs> it's so perfect because you would never think that someone like her would run away with a fuchs. Yeah, right? and I, I love that swerve, right? Because usually the scene would be, okay, she's the straight man and he's the crazy man. Like, mm -hmm. of course she would rebuff him. But for some reason, he has this magnetism to him that followed him out of the clink where he can give the oddest domineering look to someone he just runs into at a coffee shop and right. sweeps off her feet. Exactly. Apparently that's, honestly, in the world of online dating, uh, like, that might work. If you see that picture of post-prison Fuchs on your hinge, are you swiping no. left or right? <laughs> Just immediate no. Is there a swipe for no? Yeah, is there just a delete app button? <laughs> yeah, exactly. If that's what I'm pulling on Hinge, then it's time to go. Well, let's talk some apps here as we're going to Silicon Valley to, <laughs> as we mentioned before, yet another surprising location. And where are they now for our characters? <laughs> Noho Ball, which is Hank's enterprise that he has created. We mentioned it before. The big Cristobal statue in the the lobby we yeah. get this entire you know display about cristobal's vision of the sand venture complete with a quote every day can be like dave and busters <laughs> listen they're a high quality operation lt they don't have squirt and jolt but they have enough of you know high quality housing to put up fuchs and all of his guys later on yeah this house looks sick um i love <laughs> that they're making sounds like they're ooh ah oh like that was so ADR it's so, so stupid funny. I love it <laughs> it's so ridiculous um yeah I, I mean Fuchs is getting his guys uh, uh, and himself the best accommodations and money on the on the app um the what Moolah was the app, app. Called? the Moolah app yeah of course. Yeah. And they got, you know, a pretty big pay raise even between scenes that we get of them. Yeah. I mean, let, let's talk about where we meet Hank here, because much like Barry, it seems like he's kind of living his dream, right? At least on the surface. He was always that guy when things first started who 
wanted to go less of the violent route, who wanted to run as clean of an operation as he could, mm -hmm. truly run things like a business, Stringer Bell style. And yeah. he was able to succeed in yeah. this venture. He's wearing this like really nice three-piece suit, has this top floor corner office, able to offer these palatial mansions to his hired goons. Hank has got a good living right now. Goons, hired goons. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, no, he's doing pretty well for himself. He looks fantastic. Um, he, but it, it all is very superficial. Like you get the idea that just under the surface, you know, he could just at any time lose it, which we see later. But we get a little glimpse of when he's showing them around this like beautiful estate that yeah. they're going to be living on. And, you know, he's like, yeah, everybody, let's go. Let's effing go. And then he looks over, you know, at the beautiful view and almost starts to tear up because he can't and will never be able to forgive himself for what he did to Cristobal. Yeah, I really clocked that moment as well. And I think it's so beautifully done on Anthony Kerrigan's part because yeah. I agree. We realize in that moment that this is yet another performance that a character is putting on. and. Yeah you know, Hank isn't wearing the wig a la Sally, but he is metaphorically here and trying to still be that guy we saw giving the energetic pitch at the Dave and Busters a few episodes ago of, yeah, teamwork makes the dream work. Let's all do this. When really you take a look at him in that moment and especially at that dinner later on, and you see that the man who dreadfully and depressively and tremendously did what he did at the end of episode four still lives in there he yeah. couldn't be this person without that. And so it is very jarring to then get reintroduced to Hank back in the mode that we assumed he would be in prior to episode four of, you know, the jolly beneficial man who is able to keep things again, relatively above the table. And Fuchs is not for it right <laughs> now. The fact that he has now turned into the Raven that he was thought to be or suggested by Hank, right? right. This like ruthless, criminal guy who basically tells Hank, I don't care about your money. I don't care about your crib style mansion. All I want is Barry's head on a silver platter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it, and, and the way that uh, kind of comes out happens when, <laughs> when Fuchs is white girl wasted later uh, <laughs> and says the wrong thing. Um, it, it's just, I, I really like this storyline so much. I like what they've what they've managed to do with keeping the character of Cristobal like fully in everyone's mind mm. the entire time Hank is on the screen. And then of course having Fuchs be the only person who can call him out on it. Um, and it's too oblivious to not call him out on it, really. Yeah, and not only that, Fuchs has come from and also lives in a world that is so heavily violent right mm -hmm. that he takes it as a badge of honor something that he himself would get tattooed uh yeah. much like the place that he came from right of like good for you being so heartless that you wasted your own partner and hank even all these years later just sees it as a necessary evil and something that he shouldn't necessarily be proud of and so it's really interesting to see these two guys how they view the same action like that rise and fall of status that happens over the course of those couple of scenes as well. Yeah. Before we get into that, though, let's check in with Gene. As Gene is going to try to get settled back into his house, which has become Tom's squatting pad, as well as a makeshift Howdy Doody museum, it seems. <laughs> the 
Howdy Doody uh, collection is the funniest thing. I had to pause just to look at all of the different things that were there. Um, but yeah, I, I love how he just took over his client's home without seemingly asking. I mean, that's very Tom, though, right? He does seem very much to me like the Barry Zuckercorn of Barry, <laughs> uh, ironically enough, of like the shady huckster type that, that uh, you know, Henry Winkler was for Arrested Development of, yeah, I'll live in my client's house. You know, he's not using it, obviously. Yeah, exactly. He, this is the type of guy that will easily break into somebody's house and throw a monitor into a pool, <laughs> thinking that it houses all this data. So he is willing to do whatever to make himself an easier living. And what doesn't help the case, though, is, again, the reason why Gene decided to come out of hiding, which comes out in this lunch meeting he's going to have with the return of Annie Chang as this WB executive. So what's interesting is the THR headline from last episode said that this movie was going to be a biopic. The way that Annie Chang is pitching it doesn't seem like that's the no. case. She said it's a cat and mouse thriller, thriller. about yeah about a teacher and a student. So maybe it's very much embellishing the facts, much like, you know, something Gene is very much used to and did a few episodes ago. But despite that irony, he is going to be firmly against the idea of putting his story on the big screen. Yeah, he he turns completely and says that he's just here to stop this from happening. Now, one would think that he would have thought to reveal that before they put something in the trades about it. Um, because obviously the just his association with a movie very much makes it seem like he is associated with a movie that's about to come out. So right. I don't know how he accepted this article is okay. Um, but yeah, he is very much a different person eight years later and is there because he doesn't want to glorify Barry and he doesn't want to, you know, like crap all over the memory of Janice. Yeah, I wonder how long this clarity is going to last, <laughs> though. It seems like L.A. is sort of this heart of darkness on Barry, where yeah. people become the truest version of themselves, no matter what the situation. So even though Gene felt he cleared his head in Israel, I imagine once the L.A. smog is going to start revolving around his mind, is he going to eventually undo the words that he said about, I was a self-involved narcissist, but mm -hmm. I'm not anymore. And then he goes back to being that. I agree about the timing of the article. Maybe it was that, you know, somebody got a tip off from one of these WB executives of, oh, Gene Cousineau met yeah. with WB and they just spun it off into a story of him being involved. Because, yeah, the truth of what Gene is trying to do obviously understandably given as we mentioned before the irony of barry's visit juts up against what gene is actually trying to accomplish here right yeah it just seems two step steps forward two steps back to me like uh i it doesn't make any sense that that article would come out that way unless it was a true leak like you said which we know happens all the time in actual hollywood um so uh and we also needed a reason to get barry to come to la it is really easy, or, or sorry, really interesting, I meant to say, how uh, L.A. is portrayed as the heart of darkness. I, it makes me wonder if really podcasts aren't the enemy and L.A. is. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I'm just happy to not have the target on me because we know what guns can do, according to that oh one Walmart employee. <laughs> 
I yeah. that was so good. I know that Bill Hader said that episode five was really funny, and I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. This episode, though, was very funny. Specifically, this one scene where we mentioned it before. Since he starts landing in LA, Barry is cycling through all of these different podcasts to mm-hmm. essentially find the person that is able to tell him God says it's okay to kill Gene Cousineau. And I love that odd by a self-enabling behavior. It reminds me of, okay, I went to mom to ask if I could do this thing and she said no, so let me go to dad. Trying yeah. to like purposely find the one person who will say yes to your activity. So then you could say, well, they told me to, so I'm okay with getting it accomplished. So the fact that he starts with this guy, Pastor Pat, who's like, oh, well, all sins are sort of scalable in the eyes of God, except for murder. That's by far number one. (laughs) To this scene here of him shopping for the gun, and we get the sort of eventual baby bear just right here between the three of, well, there are things that were done for a good cause. Now, if you were not commanded to do so by God, then no, never mind. You're a horrible person. You're going to hell. And I love the Barry stopping in the aisle and exhaling as if he had forgotten something at the Walmart when he got home. Any scene at a Walmart is going to be hilarious, you know, just like built in humor. Um, I also love the uh, commentary that we get here about gun control laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it, honestly, that seems accurate. That seems like something that the law will require you to do right before they give you your gun immediately. Basically, the clerk shows Barry this, you know, three-sided poster board of a bunch of gunshot wounds that says in all caps, this is what guns can do. And Barry just looks at it and nods he's like, mm-hmm. like he's like he's picking out wallpaper for his house. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> so creepy and weird like this episode is really funny but uh and the moment that happens with the podcast right after this is hilarious yeah uh but uh it's also very frightening in a lot of different ways um they play with the tension a lot really well and this whole uh you know just the things i find horrifying generally are our gun laws so this is mm-hmm. uh, what really started the terror for me in the episode, the second that Barry got there and got that gun. He's got the gun. Now he just needs the gumption, and he'll Ooh. get it in his final podcast here by Pastor <laughs> Nick Sedangelo, who is a former hockey player who went to jail for 10 years for killing somebody on the ice. And he basically gives his own skewed perspective, right? Of, mm-hmm. well, I don't feel guilty about ending this man's life because I prayed about it and I felt like I was given a sign from God when this person sent my fellow teammate to the hospital. I feel like that gave me the right to kill this man. And Barry <laughs> yeah. says, literally says, good enough. Yeah. And like, turns like, off, bingo. Yeah, turns <laughs> off the car. So ridiculous. But it's, I mean, this is, hilarious like comedy rule of three kind of thing Mm -hmm. uh really really well done and just the type of gag that is so berry that it's it's just brilliant i love it so much i love this that if you i mean it is very true that if you search like long enough you'll find a podcast that will justify pretty much any type of behavior that you want to engage with so yeah this is all too real um 
Bill Hader, what are you saying about us? Well, speaking of perhaps uh, behaviors that may or may not be encouraged, mm-hmm. let's get to Sally and John. I don't know if this is a hot take, LT. For some reason, this particular scene made me feel more uncomfortable than the entirety of episode five. I think it's just an official confirmation to me of how Sally does not give a lick about her son whatsoever. I think I held out like a smidge of hope last episode. Yeah. She's like, oh, she's sleeping with him in the bathtub. You know, she's, no. she's but no. She's going to burn her son's grilled cheese. And when, you know, he won't stop crying about missing his dad slash cult leader, she'll get him drunk. Yeah. Uh, Listen, Sally tried really hard on that sandwich. She tried really hard. Um, Too hard, I think, given those burn marks. (laughs) Very hard. Uh, This is, well, I, I found it difficult to watch to a point. I will say that when they cut to, uh, to him sobbing at the table, I just could not stop laughing. Like that was the <laughs> the funniest thing ever to me. That Sally is just like slowly over the day getting drunker, trying to deal with the fact that her son will not stop crying. Um, and unfortunately, she probably goes back into the well of what happened to her when she was a kid, and she was being a little too rambunctious, and she just decided to solve. The problem with alcohol, which is how we know Sally solves her problems now. I love the typical role reversal we get with household roles between Barry and Sally, where mm-hmm. I think in general, especially back, you know, I think when people like Bill Hader were children, I mean, there was typically this idea of even at that time, the mother staying home and being closer to the kids because they spend all their time together and the dad being the one where when they're left alone with the child, they don't really know what to do. They're loosely gesturing to coloring books, being like, yeah, you like coloring, right? Right. All right, let me attempt to make lunch. Oh, no, I burned it. And so, again, I love the reversal on that, that because of their situation, Barry is the one who stayed home, mm-hmm. who homeschooled John, who became his his son, S-U-N. And Sally is just like one of these planets that will occasionally come into orbit. She's the breadwinner in the family. She's going to make money. And then between that and her general listlessness in her situation, right. when she's left with her son, she both has no idea what to do, neither does she care what to no. do. Sally's Pluto, she's not even allowed to be a planet anymore. <laughs> yeah, we were a good number of years, <laughs> but then eventually they said, no, you're just a dwarf. Yeah, exactly. Uh, she's been demoted in every way, in shape and form in life, and she just doesn't have any shits to give anymore. And I think that that extends to her child. And she just wants to shut him up if she can. What I find so interesting is something Bill Hader reminded us of on the Prestige TV podcast is think back to the premiere when Sally is showing her parents Joplin. And the only thing her mother says is, you don't have a kid. Right. And it's so interesting to cut to eight years later. And Sally, ironically enough, now living this fabricated lifestyle that she dramatized for a TV show. We're now, in this moment, she is that single mother with a child. But in that instance, where she was inspirational and caring and loving with a message to always put forward at the end of an hour, here, Sally does not care whatsoever. She's like, no, 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 this isn't scripted. The script is much more exciting than what I have in reality. 
Yeah. The medium is the message, unfortunately, and mm. Sally is the medium. <laughs> well, let's go from one fractured parent-child relationship to another one and age them up just a bit. Put a little bit of gray in that beard. As we see, Barry is staking out a house trying to pump himself up again with that podcast because Gene is going to drop by and finally visit Leo now that he's in town. We had a scene that we sort of skipped over earlier where Gene goes to go see the DA and mm -hmm. sort of re-explains why he's there, that, you know, he felt like he didn't want to immortalize Barry. And the DA asked, okay, are you going to go, how did your son react when you went to go visit him for the first time after you shot him thinking he was another man? Gene doesn't respond because he's going to get his answer here. He's going to visit Leo and... It's a little familiar to the first time we saw Leo, right? Where yes. Gene goes to seek him out. He is rebuffed, but very reluctantly let in the door. Yeah, Leo always seems to be the type of son who is just kind of ultimately forgiving of his dad and the things that he does. And, you know, he feels discomfort about being around him a lot of the time because of, I guess kind of the transactional nature of his pat his father's past relationships and maybe relationship with him uh so leo does eventually like let him in and and kind of like lets him say his piece right and it's an interesting way to rebuild that bridge after it was destroyed in a hailfire of bullets that that was the entire storyline throughout season 2 going into season 3 was gene trying to make it back up to his son. I wouldn't be surprised if the line he tells Leo here, I'll be paying back that debt for the rest of my life, is something he said back in season two. And then we get the repeat structure here. And of course, what's going to happen? You end up leaning back upon perhaps being too much of an open door in the case of Leo and letting this guy back in to say, I just don't know how to quit you, dad. Okay, <laughs> tell me what you're doing here. Even though he really does not believe Gene in many no. ways, both, you know, the fact that he has had this big self-esteem cleanse and is now completely acting not on his own volition and the fact that he is in town specifically to nix this movie. Yeah, um, he doesn't believe his dad want, doesn't want the movie to occur for one bit. Uh, for one second, and he uh, is really unsurprised to hear that the only thing that got his father to surface was not him or his, you know, his grandson uh, and the ability of trying to rebuild something there, but to make sure a movie does or does not happen. Yeah, especially because the last time he saw his dad, he didn't even see him in person. No. He saw him through a closed door right. because his dad shot, shot him, him and left him for dead and fled the country you would imagine that for leo once everything got sorted out and as gene says his injuries were deemed non-life-threatening that he'd say okay i'm back let me help take care of my son who i shot but right. instead he does this incredibly selfish maneuver eight years ago of saying no but it's not safe for me so i have to abandon my child once again after rebuilding all this goodwill throwing it into the fire as I go to flee. Yeah, he abandoned his boy. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and there will be blood. There was on that doorstep back in Bibear. Yeah, 
yeah, heads will roll. Um, like it, it is just absolutely ridiculous that poor Leo just continues to be the sap that takes this guy back into his life time after time after his dad has endangered his life in so many different ways and that of his son. It's just really heartbreaking to see that that Leo just doesn't have it in him to say ultimately no, like get out of here to your to you know his father, including in this moment where Barry is about to burst in and kill both of them. He has the words that he needs, the guidance from God, supposedly. <laughs> He's about to charge in, but like Sawyer at the end of Confidence Man, he gets taken back by a child as a now teenage Gordon ends up walking in. And it's so interesting to see the thing that stops Barry and to see the reflection of this theme that perhaps a lot of these characters have not changed that much in the eight years. But Barry really has in yeah. that he now has someone that he feels like he really is fighting for in the case of John. And his heart grew three sizes that day in that I think he looks at Gordon and I think he can't help but look at John. And the yeah. idea for him of killing another father really comes into his front view mirror and makes him realize for the first time the gravity of what that decision entails. Yeah, exactly. It's just, and it's so well done with the school bus being the thing that keeps him mm. from crossing the street. And then you see that it's because like this kid has gotten off the school bus. Um, it, it really does like stop Barry literally in his tracks and makes him start to rethink everything that he thought was a sign because now he's gotten another sign in that Leo's son has you know, magically walked up into the house at the exact time he was fine with killing Leo and uh, Gene, but not the kid. And we know that that's all because of John. And it's just really, it's so interesting because, you know, we talk about Barry changing a lot, but at the same time, he still thinks that the best way to solve his problems is through murder. Mm -hmm. But he has be become a dad and takes that role seriously, even if he's doing a terrible job at it. Yeah, I mean, he wanted a sign, and he got a literal stop sign, yeah. both on the bus and what he felt was the universe saying, hold on for a second, are you sure you want to do this? This person has a family, and what's the difference between someone trying to want to break up your family and you breaking up this family? It's like a surprising splash of cold water on a character who, like you said many times before, has regarded murder so flippantly because it's just part of his dna yeah it is really built into him and it is the and he's good at it too like it just comes naturally and that is terrifying i mean like i i uh i knew that this was going to be a little bit of a horror movie of an episode when earlier in the episode uh when sally is trying to get barry not to go to california uh, he says the only alternative is that we drop John off at an orphanage and then we both kill ourselves, mm -hmm. which really means that he's going to kill Sally um, and then kill himself, which just put like such a pall of danger over this entire episode. So when it got to this part that he was only stopped because, you know, a kid walked into the house, it was just really interesting to see how... It, like how 
Barry operationalizes his love and commitment to his son. Right. I mean, his son is not only his world, he serves as this representation to him of like being able to remake his own image in someone's eyes. Right. That's one of the reasons why he has held John so close to him. It's because as I mentioned before, he feels like second only to God is John as someone who can look at his dad and say, this is a good person. This is someone that I can forgive Mm -hmm. ultimately. And part of that is through ignorance and what he has blocked off from his son in terms of the world and in terms of his own history but he doesn't want that world to be broken in that way. And I think it's gotten to the point where him just looking at a child within, what, 10 years of John's age causes him pause, which I think is just such a really crucial moment for this character in the next two episodes. Obviously, Barry's going to wind up in a heap of trouble at the end of this, but to see a character who had very little trouble pulling the trigger 99 out of 100 times we've seen him on this show to see the reason why he doesn't pull it here speaks so much to who he has become in the past eight years. Yes, for sure. And it's startling to see. Well, you mentioned horror movie vibes. Yeah. Let's get to the most horror-filled moment of it all in this episode. And frankly, a scene that I'm grateful we have this for, even if Bill Hader doesn't, to just talk through what the hell happened. (laughs) Happened. So John is passed out on yeah. the couch. Problem solved for Sally. She, and good for her. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and she, well, she is also in so much of her own stupor yes. that she's just going to go fall into bed, crawling on top of these gun parts <laughs> even to go to sleep. Some amount of time passes and we hear a distant muffled voice saying, hey, bitch, I'm coming for you, bitch. I'm coming for you and that boy of yours. We follow Sally out into the living room where we slowly, tensely follow her, check all the windows, try to look outside. Mm -hmm. And then we see a couple of times that the call is coming from inside the house. Someone dressed in all black, including like a full mask over their face, is standing right behind her. Almost farcically, like something out of duck soup, She does not notice (laughs) this person. She eventually, after checking every lock and window, goes back into the bedroom. The door then closes. Then we hear back from behind the door, so now this person is supposedly gone, some very familiar dialogue. Did you poke me in the eye? Why can't I see? This is the man that Sally stabbed in the face and then killed at the end of season three. Those words are repeating. She's trying the door. It's locked. She very hurriedly puts the gun together. And as she's about to point it at the door, and I get worried for the second time in a season, we're about to see a poor kid get shot behind the door. Yeah. We hear a very different calamitous sound. The foundation starts shaking. The house tilts. A bunch of stuff goes sliding Sally's way as she screams. And... In the style of Jack Torrance, here's Tyree as a big car tire bursts through the wall, then backs out. Sally looks through the hole in the wall and sees a malevolent black pickup truck pull away. And you would imagine on paper, okay, this has to be some sort of drunken fever dream. 
of Sally's about the paranoia that's been bred in her from Barry being gone. But then both in this next establishing shot and in the scene we get afterwards of John waking up, the living room is yeah. in disarray. So LT, did this happen? Some of it did, I think. I don't know about the the uh, the day man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he needed cat eyes at this point. Uh, but uh, like that part, I I worry was not real. But that was visually some of the coolest like horror movie shit that I've seen in a while. So I was like all in here. I do not know exactly what parts of this were real and what parts weren't, but um, it's you bringing up to me, so I remembered again, the dialogue of the man that Sally stabbed. Because I was just like, when the door, when he closed the door, I was like, why would he be saying this? Like, what would have happened to his eyes? So I that went completely past me. So thank you for that. But yeah, I think maybe the car part is real. I just, I, I can't seem to think of who that could be. It could be Bevel, I guess. Yeah, but we saw Bevel's car last time. Unless she oh, was able and, to like, yeah, really borrow. upgrade and borrow a, a Ford F-150, even though the dude is out of work, so he doesn't necessarily have the funds to do so. He seems to be the most likely suspect, but I think due to the tinted windows of it all, if this is indeed real, we have to think a little bigger. Yeah, so maybe Hank's crew, because Hank put out feelers uh, to see where Barry is. Yeah, we even mentioned it earlier, but basically Hank kind of like shrugs off Fuchs by being like, yeah, you know, we heard that Barry's acting teacher is back in town. We mm -hmm. put some feelers out there. Maybe he did send some of the Chechens to do it and really send a message by supposedly driving their car into the side of her house to the point yeah. where it went up on such a level that the tires went through the wall. Yeah, it went full Titanic, this house. Like, it was bizarre. And the only thing that makes me think that that actually happened is the fact that when John finally wakes up from his drunken nap, he looks around and is like, what the hell is going on here? The only other remote possibility I have is did Sally Durden the house? You know, did she, <laughs> thinking that this was happening, have any sort of manic episode and like threw things astrewn oh, in the living room? Yeah. And as a result, John is coming about in this calamity that Sally is claiming is happening when really it's herself enforcing it. That could very well be true. But if the, the side of her house is still see-through, I don't know how she managed that. Yeah, I have no idea either, but this just came out of nowhere. It is so well done, yeah. to your point. The the tension is felt in a very different way in L.A., much like we got in episode four of presenting the various paths and people that Barry could visit. Now we're getting it in a similar way, but with Barry now actually present of, okay, who is he going to go? What's he going to do to eventually get to Gene? But this is a completely different beast to find out that literally the homestead is now unsafe that yeah. someone has been able to find them drive their car into the side of their house to again show the power of things it still is a little out to lunch as to whether the guy in black was somebody i was yeah. trying to think back to that season three episode and like if the man that sally stabbed was dressed in all black i thought initially because the guy that she killed 
was like one of the remnants from that dirt bike gang that Barry took out, right. one of the, the groups of Vengeance Panthers. And so I thought initially, when we heard the revving up of the engine outside, I thought it was going to be a dirt bike going through. And like we were going full oh. dream sequence, Sally's guilt-ridden moments of murder have come back to haunt her. Right. But to your point, the fact that there's a different vehicle and this all seems to be reality has me scratching my head, but absolutely smiling in ecstasy at the same time i know i i was so confused and i watched it twice um i was just like what is happening right now is this real life um or is this just fantasy yeah exactly caught in a landslide which is what it looks like that house was yeah mama just killed a man (laughs) put a knife inside his skull (laughs) he thinks my name is emily uh yeah i i mean she could have tyler durdened it i guess uh but i don't i don't understand how the house tilted yeah Uh, you know like and full wizard of oz too which i sort of love i don't know if they're in kansas but again it very much has that farm life view to it and the fact that it feels like the house was transported to another place I guess I'll just aim for somewhere in between to try to cover all my bases of the truck stuff was real, but perhaps her walking around the place and hearing the voices was something that is bleeding into the mania that Sally is feeling, some cabin fever. Bill Hader spoke about this, the ding-dong ditch moment and last episode where Mm -hmm. someone knocks on the door. I think he felt like the moment itself was real, but then when Barry goes outside and like hears laughter, that is not. So we're really blending fiction and reality within the same scene as yeah. to what characters are actually experiencing versus what they're imagining. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, I, I Part of Sally just has to be absolutely so paranoid at all times. Um, and then, you know, we as the audience, like that the, the Black figure looked very tall and skinny like bevel mm-hmm. um so is that just kind of another thing that's weighing on her conscience and the it, it's even like choreographed the way that the blocking is done is yeah. so cool oh i love this scene yeah this was really well done just the malevolence of this very frightening but still very odd figure i mean you mentioned it's always sunny very much reminds me of green man with like the yes. whole black <laughs> get up so that the identity is obscured just following her because she's not looking in the right direction until she gets into the bedroom i mean a lot of it is probably festering from the fact that sally told barry eight years ago that she felt safe with him when that safety is revoked and especially when under the influence i think it's going to foster a lot of really big really odd thoughts especially with someone like sally who has an entire resume full of oddities that she has experienced around Barry. So this is where we're largely going to leave things to the point you mentioned earlier. We will, we will get this one scene where John finally wakes up from his nap to find Sally sitting on the floor amidst all this broken houseware, calling Barry hurriedly, even calling him by his real name saying like, I need you to get here. Where are you? It's not safe here. Let's briefly send off this storyline LT what are the chances that Sally is going to use this as her own sign to make a beeline for LA with John? 
Yeah, I think that ultimately everything ends up in L.A. And so she'll probably end up going back or at least trying to look for him once she doesn't hear from him. Because there's really no great reason that Barry wouldn't be answering the phone unless something went terribly wrong. So I think that she does end up in L.A., but then she's got to navigate L.A. with John, and that's going to be a whole other thing. Yeah, and Barry will not be happy that, again, the one person that he seems to be doing this for, or at least he's claiming to, the one most important person, arguably even more important than Sally in his life in terms of meaning, is now coming directly into the line of fire, perhaps quite literally. Right. Yeah, no, it's it's horrifying to think about. Well, let's go to yet another tense standoff. This is a scene you mentioned before where at night, everyone's sitting down to dinner. Fuchs is getting drunk for the first time on something mm-hmm. other than toilet hooch in <laughs> eight years. And That's he's, a good point. Yeah. Ugh. No wonder he was such a lightweight. He is living it up. Now, what I do find so interesting is that in the previous two scenes, he was so fixated on Barry. Barry, I don't care how much I'm making. I don't care what you put me up in. All I need is Barry. Here, he seems to be on cloud nine. And in a show that talks all about our performative nature, do you think he's putting on airs the way that Hank has been at times over the course of this episode? Or do you truly think he feels like, yeah, screw Barry at this moment. I have a family. I think that he is kind of putting on airs like he still obviously cares about Barry and uh and like so much so that that's like the first thing that he asks like he wants that more than he wants money Mm -hmm. um so I I mean I think that he's probably like I said white girl wasted on that brown liquor (laughs) and he is enjoying all of it like the the little detail where he has everyone raise a glass but says not you (laughs) Yeah, whatever her name is and her daughter who goes to Pepperdine great volleyball Uh, great volleyball that was so good and I also love that as well that these guys are clearly hired to do like illegal stuff to help preserve this sand operation he's like hey can I bring my plus one and her daughter just to check (laughs) things out also simulate the fact that this has taken place over the course of what maybe two days max maybe even one day and not only has this woman entered his life in such magnanimous fashion, but now he feels like he's already a father to this young woman. Right. Yeah. That he's met today or maybe a day ago. Um, He just really, Fuchs is, is enjoying being out of prison. You know, he, he gets out of prison immediately gets the wife and now he's got a kid and he's got this great house that he lives in. Uh, You know, this is, this is the life and Fuchs is, is living it up. He really fast-tracked it, I think. It did, yeah. And considering how much status he walked out of from prison, the fact that he was able to increase that status even further to the point where he's going to end this scene by telling Hank, like, I'm not going anywhere, and you and I <laughs> both know that. Let's speak about the Hank side of things, because Loose Lipped Fuchs is really going to commend oh Hank for creating this empire, right? This Fortune 500 company. The fact that he's hanging with the mayor and all these actors, He'll verbalize what a lot of us thought before that infamous scene in episode four. Didn't think I had it in you. Hank has gained some notoriety even within the cling for what is known as the NoHo Hourglass, that mm-hmm. maneuver where he killed off all of those gangsters by trapping them within the sand silo. Hank clearly is not happy with all of these lauded achievements. No. And especially 
when the name Cristobal is invoked. Fuchs says, you took care of Cristobal, you took his idea, and you made it your own. And I love comparing this to Gene's consternation, right? Because mm. in both of these ways, both of these guys are putting their foot down and closing a door that's in front of their face to say, no, no, no. I need to tell this story the right way. You are telling it the wrong way. That despite how cold and shrewd Hank felt and feels that he needs to be to be in the position that he's in, he draws the line at this idea of, oh, I single-handedly killed Cristobal and stole his right. idea and became successful because of it. It was something that broke his heart. We saw him heaving those sobs for those five seconds before he steals himself. Mm -hmm. He's still sobbing on the inside having to think about losing him. Yes, obviously, you know, him murdering Cristobal has affected him in ways that we don't fully know because we haven't seen him for eight years. But in very a very obvious way is that he's decided to build a bit of a tricky legacy uh, to reference last week's <laughs> uh, episode title around Cristobal and all of the things that he brought to the world. And it's all just guilt festering. And so when he uh, has to interact with Fuchs, who he knows very well, but hasn't seen in a long time and, and should know that Fuchs would be the exact type of person that would figure out and call him out on what he did to Cristobal. He can't take it. Like he's barely hanging on by a thread as it is. He's just projecting uh, as much confidence and happiness as he can. But he, I think is very much a broken man and this is evidenced by the fact that he so quickly loses control in this moment uh, in public, basically. Yeah, we get shades of the man we assumed Hank would become by the time he very mutely and blankly walks away from Cristobal's dead body. Finally, that person comes out where he shrewdly stands up and says, okay, deal's off. You said the one thing you shouldn't say. You said the magic word, get the hell out of Pee Wee's Playhouse. Mm -hmm. And what I find interesting that will set things up, I think, deliciously for the last two episodes is the fact that Fuchs says no. Yeah. That this, this wasn't a very simple scene of, okay, we think Hank has had everything that he always wanted, mm -hmm. but it turns out that no, he really pines for what he had to leave behind, and so that's the thing that's going to send him over the edge. It's the fact that all of that is true, but Fuchs is, I imagine, going to start jockeying for power. And yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of episode eight or even episode seven, he's going to at least make a claim for the throne and the suits that Hank is wearing at the moment. Yeah, what are you going to do? Give me one of those suits? Uh, yeah. Uh, Fuchs is clearly, I mean, he is fully the Raven now. So yeah. uh, he's he's going to be squatting uh, squatting at this house no matter what uh, he is told. And he's going to, I think, you know, have to eventually come to blows with Hank over all of this and the Empire included because Fuchs is not going to stop until he feels that he has been sufficiently compensated for keeping quiet on the inside. Well, not only that, I think Fuchs sees an opportunity He's coming in incredibly egotistical about the power he was able to amass in the face of some very tough individuals, literal murderers yeah. in this prison. And I would imagine there was part of him that not only saw, you know, shock in Hank's reaction, but I think saw vulnerability and something to take advantage of as well, which we yes. know is something that Fuchs has done 
since Barry was but a wee boy playing with mm -hmm. army figures that he could say, oh, you do have a weakness. Okay, maybe you are not the shrewd murderer that I thought you were. Fantastic. I am. So I can use that to my advantage. Yeah, for sure. And he's he's definitely going to do that. And it, it's gonna get it's gonna get really ugly. He already knows what Hank's weakness is, and it's Cristobal. Like he only literally has to invoke the name before Hank just loses it. So I think that you know, Fuchs is buoyed by his own like time behind bars and is confident in his crew, but he needs to watch out because we know just how dubious and horrifying uh, Hank can be when he's pushed into a corner. Yeah, exactly. That Hank is saying he didn't kill Cristobal, but that's not reality that's just denial and yeah. we saw what he was capable of so leaving things in a really fantastic standstill i think for these two cowboys at high noon and let's finish with another tense standoff as barry is going to go visit gene who comes back to his house and i guess tom really you know put the chop chop on those movers to get the howdy doody <laughs> museum out because gene is left by his lonesome barry sees an open door as yeah. yet another sign and as he was slowly creeping in, LT, I had my own internal monologue running of saying, okay, we basically checked in on everybody, but whatever happened to Jim Moss? Yeah. We answer that question immediately as Barry gets bagged, Barry Bagman, and <laughs> he comes to, and it is his turn in Jim Moss's garage of doom as he is tied to a chair. And all we get is a shot of Jim looking down at Barry with in the background a very copious Charlie Day S corkboard of faces and names. Yeah, Carol. Uh, <laughs> uh, just he, Mr. Moss is the most terrifying character of that we've seen of anyone on this show. Like I, we still don't know what he did to that Vanity Fair reporter. Mm -hmm. Um and. I would not want to be in this man's clutches for one second. The the seeing I, I immediately knew it was him when I saw the black like bag that he put over Barry's head. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, really terrifying and I'm scared of what's about to happen next, but at least we get to see the process this time. I really like how much the fact that we, we come back to LA in this episode when so many characters, we are sort of, checking back in that these characters have lived their lives and gone through the motions over the past eight years for Jim. It really seems like he just hit pause that night that he saw Sally go into her apartment and let out a couple of swears because remember episode four was spent with him essentially on one long stakeout, just following Barry to all these haunts. And when the police saw him, he basically said, like, don't let me get to him before you guys do, because I don't promise that I won't kill this man for what yeah. he did to my daughter. Yeah. Now we see he's finally able to succeed in his mission, which, to your point, is incredibly scary. But I'm really excited to see what next week brings, because these two guys never crossed paths. They nearly yeah. did when Barry was trying to save Gene from Jim Moss in that trap that led him to getting arrested at the end of season three. But finally, this unstoppable force meets this immovable object. Mm -hmm. And that makes things incredibly exciting for what's to come. 
It really does. And I think that the scenes between these two are going to be electric. I cannot wait um, to see exactly what Jim does. And I wonder if the two of them are going to end up commiserating with each other. You know, they maybe listen to the same podcast <laughs> to get to this point. So. Yeah, do you just imagine Jim's on his own stakeouts listening to all these various people talk about, <laughs> yes, God said it's okay to stalk your daughter's killer to try to exact justice against them. Yes. <laughs> well, LT, you are certainly making a killing on the podcast scene. I know we have but another seven days to wait until we can talk about the penultimate episode Aww. of Barry. In the meantime, how are you occupying your time from a podcast perspective? Well, uh, just doing a few things here and there. Josh and I are still doing verses, which started off as a little bit of a joke, and now it's really... <laughs> as all jokes do, they become very serious the mm -hmm. more they actually get to focus. Yeah. So we're talking about Succession versus Yellow Jackets. Um, this week, the episodes were a lot more evenly matched than uh, we could imagine, because uh, for those of you all who watch, we know we got the epic birth uh, of Shauna's baby and everything that came from that. And then on succession, we got a, a scene between Tom and Shiv, which in my opinion really like elevated the episode. Oh yeah. Maybe saved it a little bit. A bad episode of succession is still like an A, you know, A episode. It's, yeah, it's not, not just pizza. It's like high quality pizza that yeah. you get from the best bistro that even if it's on an off day, it's still going to be pretty damn good pizza. Exactly. Yeah. Now I want pizza. Um, so yeah, we're doing that. Trying not to eat pizzas live on air. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm also working with the wonderfully talented Sarah Carradine and we're talking about the ridiculous show love and death, which we're both just waiting for it to prove, uh, why it should exist. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but the acting this week is superb, and so I'm going to get on the horn with her in a little while, and we're going to talk about uh, the latest episode of Love and Death. So please do tune in to that podcast and tune into that show. I know that we um, we talk about it the way that we do because we love it, ultimately. It's a David E. Kelly show, mm -hmm. so if you're into courtroom drama, if you're into uh, hypnosis sessions and... <sighs> Everything happening in an apparently very rich part of Texas that I'd never heard of before this case. Um, then this is the show for you. And Elizabeth Olsen is acting. She is doing a lot of acting. So uh, yeah, definitely check that out. And then um, I'm over at RHAP. I'm so glad that I get to be on both sides of the of the pond here. Um, <laughs> I'm over at RHAP talking to... Uh, Kurt Clark and Haley Strong about Top Chef. Now, we did not get an episode out this past week because there was some traveling going on with the, some of the uh, hosts and then there was a big technical issue. But we're going to, that means that we're going to have two for one coming at you uh, later in this, uh, this weekend. So, yeah, that'll be a fun podcast. We've never covered two episodes before. So we'll see how that goes. So check me out uh, on those. And then there's some other stuff coming up, but I don't think I'm allowed to talk about it yet. Um, I'll just say The Bear is coming. Uh, season two of The Bear <laughs> is coming. I was going to say, let me say the, the one thing that I am explicitly covering in the future as a hint. 
like a Marvel movie with revealing things in the previews. <laughs> yep, that's me. Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying the bear is coming. I'm just letting people know that it's yes. it's gonna happen. The berry is coming. Berry is the berry is already here. It's almost over. Can you believe that? I really cannot believe we have two weeks left uh, of of everything from our HBO Sunday Night Live. I know it is wild, and this season just continues to absolutely astound me and yes. surprise me, and that makes me so excited for whatever the last combined hour of the show is going to be. It's taking me everything that I have to not watch the next screener right away. <laughs> So we'll see. But uh, you can catch me on Twitter while that's still a website, just talking about random things and probably retweeting uh, images of the Beyonce uh, Renaissance tour, which started in Stockholm yesterday um, at LK Starks. Or you can follow me on Instagram, where soon I'll be posting some pictures of those nephews that I mentioned earlier. Um, You can follow me on Instagram at Stormborn1222. And of course, you can follow me at a Mike Bloom type. I'm trying to keep myself busy between Barry episodes, talking about some other weird, very fun shows. <laughs> Mrs. Davis aired its penultimate episode this past week, which provided. It did? Yes. That's the penultimate episode? Eight episodes total ending <sighs> next week. And we got a lot of answers, but of course, questions from those answers. And we also had a lot of questions for a very special interview that should be out by the time this podcast is released. Andy McQueen, who got to play the character of Jay on Mrs. Davis, wow. who is also apparently a big listener and fan of our podcast, as well as Lost, got to come on. What? Talk about, yeah. It's, That's uh, amazing. Freaking surreal to me. <laughs> uh, and Andy gets to talk about how surreal this experience has been for him, both in producing the show, uh, as well as getting to see the reaction from it, ourselves included, Really fun chat about the show in anticipation for its finale, of which, of course, we'll be doing coverage of that. The other big show I'm covering, which is just getting started, as we like to say, is Silo, which is one of the newest big prestige Apple TV Plus shows. Uh, It aired its third episode this past week, and it's an episode I really, really enjoyed. Talking about that with Dr. Amanda, that has been a lot of fun as well. Definitely encourage people to check that out, especially if you're a fan of like the darker tinged shows there's a lot of dark stuff that happens in silo but it's very invigorating as well and hopefully you're invigorated by our coverage of barry too this has just been so much fun to pick apart you know it's a half hour show and been talking for at least twice its length about it just goes to show how much they pack into these half hour installments and i am saddened yet so pumped that we have two installments left to talk about because you know shit is going to hit the fan and the fans going to get destroyed and the blades are going to walk <laughs> off and cut people's heads off. A lot is going to go down in these next two weeks. Yeah. It's going to be a bloodbath, I think. And I'm a little bit uh, worried about my own like psyche uh, with this show ending and whatever it's going to happen. Well, we'll do a check-in next week as we'll recap the penultimate episode of Barry Season 4. Thank you all so much for listening. Until next week, take care, bye-bye, and see you.